Today, we have a special bonus episode of The New Way We Work, recorded last week at the Fast Company Innovation Festival in New York. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about what you'll be hearing on this show starting the week of October 3rd. We're kicking off our ninth season with a four-part miniseries, Ambition Diaries. At the beginning of the year, Fast Company set out to talk to mothers and daughters across the country about the issues we report on regularly. Unpaid labor, discrimination, pay gap, career advancement, work-life balance, and how the pandemic has changed our relationship to work, and more. Seven reporters spoke to mothers and daughters from a range of backgrounds and industries, and over the next four weeks, you'll hear from all 14 women in intimate conversations about tough family and personal decisions, discrimination, and dreams delayed, discarded, and discovered. Here's a little of what you can expect. You know, sitting in meetings, like big meetings in conference rooms where I'm the only woman in the room, was always uncomfortable. And if I tried to assert myself, then I'd often find myself trying on behaviors that didn't really feel right to me, but seemed like they were needed in the moment. And sometimes I'd get feedback that I needed to be more of a jerk. Sometimes I'd get feedback that I was being too emotional. as like, I don't understand what you want from me. She reported to him and he called her a halitosis breath bitch in front of us, who were her direct reports. I would go and pitch to supermarkets and most of the store managers were male. Mm -hmm. And small little Asian girl comes in, <laughs> just like, do you want to try this? Like, luckily some of them did say yes, but then there were a lot of people that didn't take you seriously, so. Maybe it's a girl. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's because I'm a female. So I would have to work all day and then go back to Indiana, and then he would have individual meetings, like meetings with the, the DJs first, meeting with the, um, the secretaries next. And so I would have to wait for the sales team. And he, and so, he was sending moms home last. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was sending moms home last. I saw many complaints of sexual harassment come through that were either dismissed or ignored completely. And because we're brought up in this culture of like, you know, climb the ladder, do what you gotta do. Yeah. Oftentimes you have that nervous chuckle, that uncomfortable chuckle, or you turn the other cheek and- And you learn to stay silent because the few times that you do say something- You're the troublemaker. Right, exactly. And you're gonna get retaliation yep. because of that. And I learned to be quiet. Make sure you subscribe to The New Way We Work on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss any of Ambition Diaries. And now, here's my conversation about burnout from last week's Innovation Festival. Live from the Fast Company Innovation Festival in New York, beyond burnout, why are so many people unhappy at work? So even before the pandemic ushered in phrases like the great resignation and quiet quitting, burnout among the most dedicated employees was an issue. But the last few years, employees across industries have suffered a remarkable decline in morale and are quitting, retiring, changing jobs, or scaling back. And often the normal attempts to address dissatisfaction with bonuses or extra time off aren't making a difference. So what's really behind this crisis and how can both managers and employees address job satisfaction in a more meaningful way? And here to help me answer those questions, uh, our Lum Lumila, I'm so sorry, I'm going to mispronounce it, Lumila Presvova. 
Lumila, thank you. Lumila and, and Phoebe Gabin. Lumila is a professor of organizational psychology at Vanguard University of Southern California with extensive experience in talent systems, inclusion, and well-being. She is a frequent contributor to Fast Company and the Harvard Business Review. And Phoebe is a career and leadership coach specializing in career strategy, negotiation, and self-advocacy. She's also the executive director of talent and development at Vox.com, uh, where she oversees employee life cycle from candidate to employee to alumni. So we were already talking beforehand. This is like such a rich topic, right? Well, first of all, thanks for joining me. Sorry, I just like snowplowed past that, but thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to start with the most general question. So burnout is one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot and kind of used in unintentional or like misleading ways. Can we start with what burnout is and what burnout isn't and how our understanding of burnout has evolved and whoever wants to jump in? So when I talk to individuals about how they're experiencing burnout, and that's the language that they're using, I ask them, are you tired or are you tired of it? Mm. Because those are two very different things. You can say, oh, I'm burnt out on doing this thing. That is more that you are tired of that. It is not meaningful for you anymore versus I'm burnt out. I am getting sick. I'm fighting with my family. I'm crying all the time. Like that is burnout. And I always encourage people to try to think about, like, are you tired or are you tired of that thing? Because you're going to need to deploy a very different action plan if you're tired of the thing that you're doing versus if you are experiencing chronic depletion. And chronic depletion is a very good way to think about it because if you think about it in the context of the workplace, it's really a matter of human sustainability. You cut more trees than you replenish, mm. you're going to lose the forest. You take more energy out of the human, then you allow this person to replenish with free time, with enjoyment of the work, with various benefits. You're going to burn the human out. So that is one way that's helpful to think about it. It's really a matter of human energy and human sustainability in the long term. So sometimes people say, I'm burned out, and they were doing something for a couple of weeks. That's highly unlikely. But yes, long term a human sustainability issue is something that is increasingly a problem in the workplace. It's also worth considering, are you burning out or are you burnt out? So if you are burning out, then you are at a place where you can take action to replenish and re-engage with that thing if that is your choice. If you are burnt out, then there's, a, again, a very different action plan that we need to take to replenish so that you can get back to enjoying whatever that activity is Let's talk about those. It sounds like three different things, kind of like, are you burnt out already? Are you on your way to burning out? Or are you just burnt out on the thing that you're doing? And so those are probably three different solutions. I guess maybe how do you identify each of those? And then how do you address each of those? I like to, again, going back to that question of are you tired or are you tired of it? And so that's a great way to define whether you are disengaged or whether you are burnt out or burning out. And then if it's burnt out or burning out, it really does come down to severity, at least from my perspective. And Ludmilla, you'd be able to speak to this with a lot more authority. If you are just tired all the time and don't really want to engage with it and don't want to and find it very difficult to engage with your work and bringing that cynicism and not really wanting to put your best self forward, that to me is certainly burnout, but a lower level of burnout. But once you're starting to experience physical symptoms, mental symptoms, effects in your relationships, that to me is a much higher level of burnout that requires a much more intense intervention. 
Another word that we hear a lot lately, self-care. Mm. So self-care is something that might be helpful on those early stages where you feel like, I need to take more time off, I need to start me taking mental health days. But when World Health Organization included burnout in its list as an occupational uh, syndrome, they talk about it as something that is caused by chronic work stress that hasn't been addressed that leads to people seeking medical health. So when we start talking about it in the health terms, then we're talking about the later stage of burnout where people literally can become physically depleted. Uh, they are chronically sleep deprived with all the consequences that has for our body. So we definitely then need to look at specifically each case for individual if it's sleep deprivation, if it's, you know, you never see the daylight because you work all the time. What is it exactly? Or is just the specific tasks take too much out of you? But in some more extreme cases, people might end up needing medical attention because there are physical symptoms. And this is why I always talk, when I'm working with leaders about um, how to manage burnout in their teams and in their organizations, I talk about burnout as an occupational safety issue. If there was um, a leaky pipe next to the elevator that was leaving a puddle, like you would take care of that immediately because somebody could slip and hurt themselves and, and that individual would be impacted, but also the business would be liable for that. And so you would take care of that immediately because it's a very obvious occupational safety issue. But burnout is just as much of an occupational safety issue, but leaders are a lot more reticent to take swift, decisive action to stamp it out in their organizations because it feels a lot more nebulous, but it is just as much an occupational safety issue. And I feel like the level that you both are talking about it now is like, is a health and safety level, is it, and is a like kind of an extreme level where as a manager you would start to notice these physical symptoms. I think the other part of it is maybe a lot more subtle and a lot harder to put your finger on, and it's things like just job dissatisfaction and quiet quitting, which I have feelings about that phrase because I feel like quiet quitting is literally just doing your job, but it is it's a, a form of, of like disengagement from work. What's different, I guess, between those sort of like disengagement from your work? Also, like what's going on differently in the last two years? Like how has this changed and what are the differences between these things? For me, it's about who has responsibility to take action. When it's just dissatisfaction with the work, disengagement with the work, not so much interested in the work, that to me is an individual that you need to use your individual agency to advocate for yourself to your supervisors to say, this is the work that I'm excited about doing. This is the work I'm less excited about doing. Is there something that we can do to adjust the demands of my job so that it's more in line with the things that I'm really excited and where I really want to send my energy? Having that conversation is something that you as an individual have to initiate with your boss because they are not a mind reader. Uh, every single human relationship runs basically on the same dynamics and no one in your life is a mind reader. You shouldn't expect your parents or your kids or your partners or your friends to read your mind and know what you need. You shouldn't expect your boss to do that either. But once you have that conversation with your boss, then it becomes an organizational issue. That leader needs to be skilled enough and empathetic enough to hear that conversation and want to collaborate with you to find a way to make those adjustments in a way that works for you and also works for the business. They also need to be empowered to do that work, and then it goes a layer up because their boss needs to make sure that that's possible.
And so burnout is something that has to be taken care of at the senior leadership level. Top leaders have to be invested in making sure that there are levers for leaders to pull at, to manage burnout in their departments and in their teams. And then those middle managers need to care enough about their teams and to be skilled enough as leaders to engage with this topic with their employees regularly and in a constructive, collaborative way. But that doesn't always happen because organizations are very keen to invest in upskilling their leaders at the top of the organization, but the middle of the organization often goes uninvested in. But something I say all the time is that mediocre managers manufacture misery. And so if you are working for someone who isn't in that place either because they don't care or just they just haven't had that investment so they don't really know how to do it well, then it's gonna be really difficult for you to show up to that conversation with clarity and courage and being constructive and have it actually be productive. And so it has to, there has to be investment at every level of the organization to make sure that these conversations are constructive at every level of the organization. You said a lot. You said a lot there, but I and I want to like underline a couple of of those things, and one of which is the importance of middle managers, right? Because they're the people that actually have the relationships with the employees, and you know the the oft quoted you know phrase, "You don't quit a job, you quit a manager." And but it's a, such a difficult position to be in, and so and I'd love to talk a little bit. You you said they're not mind readers. Like if you're an employee and you're dissatisfied in your job, you have to talk about it. But that's the exact problem is a lot of people are not talking about it. They're just dissatisfied and they're quitting or they're like, you know, not doing their job at the same level. Like what can you do if you're a middle manager? What signs can you look for? What how can you help bring that person back? And you could just ask people preemptively before you start seeing visible signs. There are invisible signs. So if you regularly do check with your people, how are you feeling? On the organizational level, you could have some questions in your organizational survey to uh, look for burnout and specifically the cynicism dimension that is people got a bad attitude. People don't come in with this attitude. It's something that develops over time due to poor management, constant overwork, constantly trying to plug one hole or another or some manufactured disaster or another. So asking people rather than even uh, looking and then making yourself available and making sure that there's psychological safety. Very often people don't talk because they feel like, oh, you're saying you're burned out. Well, I'm going to get rid of you at the next possible opportunity. So of course you're not going to say anything. You're going to quietly do whatever you do. So uh, creating psychological safety is one thing that is uh, increasingly important. And managers can also be vulnerable. And yes, they don't need to necessarily tell everything miserable about their lives, but appropriately say, you know what, I feel like I was getting burned out, so I'm going to take a mental health day. And normalizing this kind of conversation and normalizing this kind of behavior is something that creates an environment where people will actually say that, okay, I need a mental health day or I need a physical health day or let's balance my workload. Because if uh, whenever you say I need to balance my workload, you're just a uh, workload, you're suspect of all kinds of horrible things. People are not going to do that. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up psychological safety because I think of all of the things that leaders should focus on doing well, it should be building psychological safety within their teams because they're just the benefits are endless. You are able to really stay on top of this burnout issue, but also 
It means that you're able to uncover operational issues that someone might not want to, might be afraid to come forward with if they know about it, but they're afraid that how their boss is going to react. And that can be something that gives additional value back to the organization if you're able to uncover that and resolve it. And I wanted to give a little bit of some tactical advice for any leaders in the audience or any leaders who are listening about how you can start building psychological safety into your teams if that's not something that you've done with intention before. First, make sure that you're doing regular one-on-ones. They don't have to be an hour every single week. You can figure out what kind of length and what kind of frequency makes the most sense for the size of your team and what your team does, but they should have predictable times where they know you are going to be available for them. And in that time, you need to come forward with some sort of selective vulnerability, something that feels comfortable for you, but something that shows that you're a human being and you're interested in them as a human being so that they are willing to reflect that back to you. And so that could be something as simple as saying, oh man, I had a really rough night of sleep last night. And so I had to, I had to come in a little bit uh, later last night. My, my, my newborn was crying all night. Something like that is a very relatable human experience, but tying it to that work outcome that you were able to communicate to your boss, hey, I had a really rough night with the baby, do you mind if I come in a little bit later? Signals to that individual that you're having that meeting with, that is something I can ask my boss for, and that increases psychological safety. Another great way to uh, increase psychological safety is to very specifically and explicitly state that that is your intention as a leader. I want you to feel safe talking to me about what's going on with your job. I want you to feel safe talking to me about what's not working and what is working on the team. It helps me do my job better if I know how you are experiencing work and how you are experiencing me as a leader. Maybe the first time, maybe the second time, maybe the third time they hear that from you, they don't believe you. But if they hear it enough times and you signal that selective vulnerability, something that's comfortable for you and helpful for them enough times, eventually they are going to realize that they can trust you even if they're coming to your working relationship with a bunch of baggage from previous bosses that were abusive. Yes, <laughs> a million times yes, but that, I mean, I think that's really important. I mean, we did a, a workshop earlier at the festival about how to be an empathetic boss, and we've been talking about a lot of these themes. You know, I think when, when managers hear, like, be vulnerable, they're like, oh my God, I'm not going to share my, you know, that's not professional, I can't share my personal stuff. For me as a manager, it's as simple as, like, being honest when you ask the question, how are you doing? You know, like, the knee-jerk reaction is always like, I'm fine. And like, you don't have to share all your business, but just like, I'm, like ugh, I'm having a day, you know, like, oh, it's been a week and here's why, you know, like a little bit, like show that it's okay to also have a day and be honest about your answer. I want to ask, because this is such a big topic now, you know, burnout's always been there. This, all of these things have always been there, but what's different now? Like what have the last two years done to us that we are in this place with the great resignation, with quiet quitting, with burnout being this like top topic. What's happened? A pandemic, you know, but pandemic. what else? Pandemic, <laughs> a great reevaluation because people really either were thrown off the treadmill or they took a step back and they just kind of evaluated priorities in life. And uh, they look at it from a different perspective from realization of our mortality and yeah what matters in life, because whenever people face mortality, they start asking deep questions. Why am I doing this? Is it worth it? And now that people ask those questions, they really want to rebalance and recalibrate their priorities. People also discovered that we could have worked from home 30 years ago when the email was invented, and for some reason we haven't been allowed to do it. And what other better ways of working could 
be possible if we just get creative and human with each other. So people are asking different questions, like every shake-up uh, makes us also a little bit more creative. So we want to be more creative with our lives. And we're looking back, and those of us who have been in careers for a long time, looking back and saying, I had no breather. Why? And then younger people are looking at older people and thinking, I don't want that. Mm. Uh, I want a different life. So there has been a lot of a reprioritizing of what people want to do. And people also see that the way they've been working is not sustainable and they want something better. The gravity of this experience that we have all shared over the last two and a half years forced us to stop treating the symptoms and start looking for the causes. And we had the time to do that. And so a lot of people realize that like the reason why I'm miserable is because I actually hate my husband. The reason why I'm miserable is because I actually hate my job. Oh, that is why I'm miserable, as opposed to just trying to treat the misery, actually treating the source of the misery. And then, you know, we all shared this uh, experience together. And the thing that we were able to see is that some companies really showed up for their employees and said, this is hard. We want you to get through it. We want to help you. We want to support you. And some companies showed their butts. And when the people who were in those companies were looking out and saying, wait a second, this company over here, this competitor that I could be working for is doing all of these things for their employees and launching all of these programs. And my friends who are in you know, that Slack community that I'm in are talking about how their company is doing this, that, and the other. And here's my company being jerks. Why am I working for this jerk face company? And so I think these two things together really forced everyone to reevaluate what is the actual cause of the difficulties and challenges that I'm experiencing in my personal and professional life? How can I actually address them? And it was a lot easier for them to identify when it was actually the company. So much of what both of you said just really resonates. And, and one thing, Lumilla, that you said is the, um, you know, we saw why were we putting up with it? Like, oh, we could have been doing this all along. And it's exactly what you're saying of like, why did we put up with that? Wait, what else are we putting up with that we don't have to put up with? And, the, and you know, Phoebe, you're kind of saying the same thing of like, well, you're really reevaluating it. And we were talking about this a little bit before. Fast companies, part of it, like part of the culture for a long time was like hustle culture. And it was like our productivity stories. This podcast used to be called The Secrets of the Most Productive People. We used to really lean in and it was what people were hungry for was like, how can I get the most out of my self and get the most out of my job and, and do the most. And that's not where we're at anymore. Can you talk about like kind of the backlash to, to hustle culture and, and how these things play into it? Well, in part, people realizing that, yes, maybe I was in those values that kind of seemed to make sense at the time, but now I'm revaluating them. But I think another part is that people are trying to ask, where did that come from? And who brainwashed me? <laughs> so was it something that people were just actually trying into doing more with less? Okay, so maybe if you are a business owner, that's one thing. But people who have been employed and were just kind of always told to do more with less, more with less, more with less. It's all on you. You can get more out of yourself. At which point do you start wondering, was it a manipulation? for someone else's interest more out of me? And I think that's the question a lot of people are asking because it's one way to say, well, yes, maybe when I was 25, that's how I wanted to do it. And I'm 45 and I want to do it differently. That's one thing. But I think a lot of people are thinking in terms of 
where did that idea come from? And was it actually me or was it someone else giving me those ideas because it was for their benefit? So it's a deeper question, I believe, that people are asking. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I'm so glad that you said brainwashing because that's the thing that <laughs> I, I was going to say, drink the Kool-Aid. Like, I yeah. talk about all the time that like, I, I can call myself the nemesis of American corporate brainwashing because the thing that I really want to do is help people feel more comfortable asking, why do I believe that this is the thing that I must do? And where those values come from can be a lot of different places. It can be from parents. It can be from friends and family. It can be from previous employers. It can be just absorbing it from like what, how it seems like the industry is. But the, if you are able to identify my desire to overwork comes from an anxiety about whether I will be financially secure because I grew up in poverty, that allows you to go back the other direction and say, okay, these are some other ways that I could deal with that besides overworking, which is the way that I dealt with overworking because that was my mental chain. And so thinking through that is really, really important. 100% yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. And thinking of like what the root cause is. Oh, I feel you so much. So I, I want to ask, you know, because this is a topic that we're covering a lot at Fast Company and a topic that like all companies are grappling with and thinking about is the whole return to office. I want to get your feelings on how does the return to office play into it? What kind of role do things like, you know, as I said in the, the intro, for bosses, usually it's like, oh, people are unhappy. Let me give them some more time off. Let me give them some flexible hours, and that'll help solve it. Does that work? Why does it not work if it doesn't work? Flexible hours go only so far. So my grad school advisor many years ago said, it's great to be in academia. You choose which 80 hours a week you get to work. <laughs> which 80 hours, yes. yes. So that's, that's not flexibility that people want. If your choice is which 70 or 80 hours you're going to work, that's not what people are talking about. Or for a day work week, but we really expect you to be always available. Or you're squeezing five days into four days. Right. You know, yeah. So that's not the real deal. So the real deal is manageable workloads. That is what needs to be addressed because for many, many, many years, people had to do more with, more with less. And then, obviously, we get to reckoning because after people have been pushed and pushed themselves that way for many years, then they just come to the point where their bodies start falling apart. And they don't want to choose which 80 hours a week they want to work anymore. So we need flexibility. It makes sense, it's necessary, it helps people in all kinds of situations, whether caretaking, chronic illness, all kinds of situations. But it's not the only thing. We also need to have manageable, reasonable workloads and people who have to do multiple things to get one reasonable income. That's the whole other problem. That's also a problem of pay in that case that which 80 hours you work like there you know and I, I think I've quoted this on the show before there was a Microsoft study that showed people working from home that there's this peaks of, of activity in the third peaks at like 9 p.m. and I feel it because I'm a mom and after the kids go to bed that's when I'm like all right let me check back in but you know that's okay to a certain extent if it means that you got you know an hour back during your day but if it just means you're just working more not okay. And Lumila, and you suggested in a Fast Company article that what employees are experiencing isn't burnout, it's moral injury. And I think that's a, a phrase that maybe a lot of people are not familiar with. 
And you talked about why the solutions that managers often try actually make things worse. Can you explain kind of first the difference between burnout and moral injury, and second, why those solutions don't work? Right. And for some people, unfortunately, it could be both. But burnout is fundamentally a matter of energy. You're investing more energy. You could be doing all the right and good things, but you're doing more than them that you get to replenish. When we're talking about moral injury, it's actually doing wrong things. So it's not just energy, it's ethics. You're doing something against your moral values and against your conscience. That was originally discovered in veterans who had additional guilt and shame that weren't explained sufficiently by PTSD. Then it was studied with uh, healthcare professionals, with teachers, and the basic idea is I got into this job to help people, but I end up doing something that goes against my values. I might be required to administer treatments that cost more instead of what's the best for the patient. Or I'm just a customer service representative, but I have to lie to people all the time. And that can be very damaging over the long time. So you don't just have to be in those, what we usually think, high-stakes positions. It could literally happen in any kind of workplace. And when we have moral injury, another way to talk about it is wounding of the soul. People can have very intense guilt and shame that could really interfere with their ability to function in the more severe cases. So sometimes you can have moral injury, but no burnout. Sometimes you can have both. So it's definitely somewhat overlapping. But let's say you are told to not consider people with foreign names or not consider people uh, with... uh, year of graduation, past whatever. So if you're hiring and you're doing this kind of thing and you feel this demand that your organization subtly is requiring you to discriminate, then over time, what you're going to feel is not just burnout, but it's going to be moral injury and moral distress. And that is a very different issue that requires a different solution. That makes so much sense because I think when people, you know, like when we talk about burnout, we're talking a lot about overwork and that sort of thing. And when we're talking about moral injury, and so the answer is clear then. Why do the solutions of like more time off and flexibility not solve moral injury? It's because it's not about that. And that disconnection between your job and your purpose, I think, is, is exactly what you're getting at there. And as you said, can happen at any level, right? I mean, it can happen in, and I was having a conversation earlier about the performative things that companies do around DE&I. And if you're working at that company and you're, you know, you feel that disconnection of like, ugh, they're just performing it and it's not part of who they really are. And then I think that makes a lot of sense then when thinking about things like quiet quitting and the great resignation is like, then you're disconnected from your purpose, you're disconnected from your ambition and you're like, fine, I'll just come here and do my job and whatever. And I do think it's worth outlining the difference between being disconnected and being in conflict with. Mm, Because if you're disconnected from your values or disconnected from what you feel like your purpose is, there are, you, you have a few options. You can find a different job that is more connected to your purpose, or you can take that purpose into your personal life. And the job can just be the job and you do the job and you get the money, which allows you to go do the purpose in your personal life. 
It's a very different situation when the job is forcing you to adopt a posture or to behave in a way that is in conflict with your values. And that is a situation that can only be resolved by either changing the job or changing the job. The best thing to do in that sort of situation is to really connect and articulate very clearly, and usually not in your head, usually on digital or analog paper, what are the values that are really important to me and central to who I am as a person, and how is my job putting me in conflict with those, and what kind of change would I need to experience in my work so that I don't feel that conflict anymore. Thank you for saying that. That's a big difference between disconnection and conflict. Yeah. Phoebe, in your work as a career coach, you address self-doubt and imposter syndrome with clients. How does that kind of anxiety play into burnout and disconnection from work? And how have you seen it change over the last two years? Especially, I'm interested in things like imposter syndrome. Has that changed? Yeah, so the big thing that I see in my coaching practice, both with leaders and with individuals who are trying to move forward in their careers, is that anxiety and overwhelm are the two biggest things that hold them back from taking action that moves them forward on the career goals that are important to them. That the fear of doing the wrong thing or the fear of what if I do something and something bad happens keeps them in whatever situation they're in that's making them uncomfortable in the first place. And that is a really difficult thing to overcome. But one of the things that has happened is that we've had this collective conversation that is telling everyone, it is okay for you to figure this out for yourself. It is okay for you to take action that moves you forward. Other people are doing it successfully. Look at these other people who are doing it successfully. And that reduces how much risk we feel like there is for ourselves if we want to take, for, take action and move forward on our goals ourselves. The other thing that I'm seeing that I think is really exciting is that we are also having a collective conversation about the kind of agency that individual employees have in the workplace. And we're really moving away from this sort of extractive industrial revolution work culture where we like pull as much as we possibly can out of our employees because it has always been a mutually beneficial relationship. It's just that all of the benefit has been on the employer side until now because we have all of these spaces where we can convene and have these sorts of conversations and realize, oh, wait, the thing that is frustrating me is frustrating to everyone. I'm not crazy. I'm not weird. It is normal to be frustrated by you know, a boss that's sending you text messages at 7 p.m. on a Sunday and expecting you to respond. And so the collective conversation that we have been having over the last two years has really resolved some of the asymmetric information that has benefited employers. Employers were able to buy $30,000 compensation benchmark surveys, and we didn't even know that was a thing that existed. But now we have Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups and Slack communities and Discord communities where we can say, hey, they're saying this job pays this. Does that sound right to you? And then you can get 20 people tell you whether it seems right or doesn't seem right. And that is that creates a rebalancing that is giving employer employees, excuse me, individuals a lot more power and agency than they ever experienced before. When you talk about power and agency, that makes me think about things that we've covered before about what makes people satisfied at their jobs. And one of the big things that always, always, always comes up is autonomy and feeling like you're not just doing what your boss tells you, you're not, and you're not being monitored and tracked. I was so surprised to learn that, I, and I can't remember the statistic, the amount of companies that use tracking software, you know, with their employees working from home because it's out of sight, out of mind, and I want to make sure you're still being productive and like what that does to you to know that you're being watched. Can either one of you talk about the role of giving employees autonomy over their, their selves at work and, and how that plays in? It's tremendously important because people 
naturally want to give their best, they want to learn, but when you're monitored, it changes and research shows that it's hard to give your best even if you're trying, but it's also extremely demotivating. Uh, when you are not treated as an adult, when you're not given trust, it's very natural not to trust back. And we end up in this kind of tug of war and so more surveillance. Oh, now we're talking about quiet quitting. There will be even more surveillance and harsher rules for return to work. And I've been actually worried about that since we were talking about the great resignation, which was actually a reaction to many years of employer uh, kind of being in power from about 2008 through 2017, 18. So it was employer market. And before we had war for talent, then we had war on talent. <laughs> then we had war for talent again. Then we have pandemic with the, the, the spike in layoffs and then again, employee power. But it shouldn't be tug of war, just like you said. We are on the same side. But what I'm afraid that instead of great recalibration, many employers are going to go the way of great retaliation. And you hear that when they're saying, now economy is going to be bad, we're going to bring you to the office, mm. and you won't complain, and we're going to take away your autonomy, and we're going to monitor you in person or at home, and we're going to get the power back. It's unfortunate whenever you see this kind of thing in company actions or in social media because it's just bringing back this whole out of balance, needless power struggle, even though really employees want their companies to prosper. It just doesn't make sense that we would want to intentionally hurt our companies. So really, we just need to have rebalancing where we say, okay, this is not a zero-sum game be between employees and employers. We are on the same side. Let's just figure out how to create a new fair work arrangement. And the interesting thing about the employee surveillance trend is that it is the exact wrong reaction to solve a, a real problem. You know, if you have employees who are not being as productive as you'd like for them to be, as productive is as reasonable for their role, then the actual solution to that is curiosity, not surveillance. It's actually like having some conversations with that person to understand what motivates them intrinsically. Why are you in this role? Why did you choose to come here? What motivates you? Has anything changed in your life that has made it to where, you know, you're not performing to the standard that we would hope for you? What can we learn about each other? And what can I learn about you? And how can I be of service to you so that you can perform at your highest self? And that's the reason why I'm so like irritated with quiet quitting. Like I just, I'll go ahead and talk about it, even though I've made, made an individual choice. Like, I'm not going to talk about this, but I do I think, feel you because I do feel like it is literally oh, giving worst. a phrase to doing your job. Oh, like, why I is mean, the expectation to, yeah. Is it? Is it, though, right? <laughs> so we, it really depends. It's one of these phrases that leaves up a lot of room for inter interpretation because there definitely are sort of, I call them clandestine coasters, like people who are actually intentionally, with intention, trying to do as little as they possibly can. And like that kind of a person, like of course, that's someone that you really want to be thoughtful about, like how do we performance manage this person so that we can get them to a place where they're performing at the standard, or if they are not willing to do that, how can we manage them out of the organization? Because that kind of person is a drain on the team, they're a drain on their boss, they're a drain on the organization. It makes sense that you wouldn't want to have a team full of clandestine coasters. 
but it is totally okay to have a team full of balanced boundary setters. And some people, when they're talking about quiet quitting, are talking about these coasters. And some people, when they're talking about quiet quitting, are talking about people who are setting boundaries. But we're using the same word, so it's really confusing. Yep. And so I think getting really specific about what we mean when we talk about these behaviors and this orientation to work and how work sits into our lives is really important. Because if you approach that balanced boundary setter with curiosity and say, hey, what motivates you intrinsically? How can we incorporate more of that into your your job. That person is going to turn into a strategic striver. They're going to turn into the person who is willing to go above and beyond because going above and beyond also serves them. It serves the, the organization, awesome, amazing, but it serves them. It's in service of their intrinsic interests, their goals as a person, as a professional. And so it doesn't feel extractive and it doesn't feel depleting to go above and beyond because they are actually getting something out of it. The challenge is the urge to move toward that exploited employee where they're going above and beyond, but they're not getting anything out of it, which does lead to burnout. Thank you for like breaking it down in a way that actually makes sense because I think you're you're right. People say quiet quitting, they mean two different things. And there are, you know, when you explain it like that, there really are those different types of employees. And the, the only other thing that I want to say about surveillance culture is that it's measuring the wrong things, right? Yeah. It's like measuring the time that you're clicking your mouse and sitting in front of your computer instead of the results and like moving to a results-based culture where like, I don't care if you sit at your computer for two hours a day, if you produce great work, sit at your computer for only two hours a day, you know, like that's what I think, you know, leaders should really be focused on. And I keep talking and I'm sorry, but I want to open it up for questions. This whole idea of working to burnout is so much a part of our culture. It is so in there, at least for people of my generation. How do we tilt that? I mean, it is, it's part of the fabric. I think it starts at the top. The top leaders have to say that like, we are going to be a company who conducts itself this way, who treats its employees this way. But then that statement has to turn into very specific policies and practices that middle managers are empowered to put into place. And then they also have to be skilled enough to put that into place in a collaborative, empathetic, compassionate way. And so that requires like the, the leaders in this room, the future leaders in this room to like be the person who says, this is how my organization is going to run. This is how my team is going to run. Be the one who sort of seeps out into the organization saying, hey, we're going to be an employee-centric place, a human-centric place. And then the other piece that is really important that I want to highlight is that we have to skill up the leaders. Because if the people in the middle and the people at the top are really, really good at their function, they're fantastic salespeople, they're fantastic computer programmers, they're amazing ad people, that's great, but that doesn't mean they're going to be good people managers. And we need to acknowledge that at every single layer of the organization that uh, demands people leadership, those people leaders need to have a high level of skill in that function, and they need to be held accountable when they don't have that high level of skill. That's such a great point. I think people get promoted for being good at their job and end up as managers and don't get trained to be managers. Just because you're the best salesperson doesn't mean you're the good manager. You know? Well, I disagree with you. I think they get lots of trainings, <laughs> but they don't actually get skills, mm. right? If I go and get a training in flute, I don't even know if this is how you hold it, I am not <laughs> going to be skilled in flute. I am going to have gone through a flute training. 
And so being really specific and clear about like what are the skills that are important in our organization and what is the impact when people are good at it, what are the impact when people are not so good at it, and how can we make sure that they are getting regular experiences that help them move forward, that they're getting regular support that helps them move forward, and that we are holding them accountable when they don't take advantage of those resources or if they don't leverage them in the way that they run their teams. One, maybe two more questions. What have you seen actually work in companies? Like a company actually incorporated something into the way their people work that improved mental health, well-being, burnout. Yeah. Sometimes please. it's not adding, it's subtracting. Sometimes we could just eliminate unmeeting and tell everybody to just go breathe and uh, take a walk instead or take a nap if it's a morning meeting or evening meeting, get extra sleep. So it's not always adding things. It's a knee-jerk reaction also in American business culture to add things, to add initiatives. But we have so many things going on that sometimes it's making meetings shorter, taking away some of the meetings, reevaluating what is that we're doing that we don't need to be doing, we're just only doing it because we've been doing it for 20 years. So doing spring cleaning on the tasks and actually giving people time back. So if you've done that and then people are still stressed, you just need to hire more people. So <laughs> let's just be honest, rather than hire a consultant and a masseuse, hire <laughs> someone to take care of more things. Sounds like the thing to add is regular spring cleaning. Right? <laughs> so sorry guys, we could go on and on and on on this topic, but we're running out of time. So, Lumila and Phoebe, I want to thank you so much for being here um, and being part of the festival and being part of the New Way We Work podcast. And thanks to all of you who joined us. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And the hashtag for the festival is, of course, FC Festival. The hashtag for the New Way We Work is, of course, the New Way We Work. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thanks all of you. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on quiet quitting and burnout? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. And don't forget to tune in next week for our special four-part series, Ambition Diaries. And starting October 3rd, you can also head to fastcompany.com backslash ambition hyphen diaries for photos, interviews, and audio clips from all seven mothers and daughters. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Mm-hmm.